0: This is The Political Animals, conversations at the intersection of religion, politics and culture. I'm your host Jonathan Cole and in this episode I talk to Dr. Simon Kennedy about conservative philosopher Eric Vogelin's concept of political Gnosticism. Simon, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me, Jonathan. It's good to be back. Simon, introduce yourself to our beloved listeners.
1: Well, uh, my biggest claim to fame is that I helped you found this podcast. But uh, but beyond that, beyond that uh, Jonathan- You're an emeritus no, host. <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's right. I was only a host for a brief time, I have to say. You're really the one who's carried the can- much much longer than anyone than either of us, but or uh, well, than me, I should But, say but
0: you do have the record for appearances because you did those uh, first shows and have been a regular guest since.
1: That's that's true. That's true. And, Although Wayne
0: uh, Hudson is probably close, but I think you are actually you do are the record holder, and yeah. that's going to be a very hard record to beat. So yeah, yeah. Have-
1: I, yeah, I hope that uh, no one. I hope that um that that I can um, maintain that remarkable achievement. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but but that but, remarkable
0: but, feat that is in the Guinness Book of Records <laughs> and everyone talks about across the right. planet. Yeah,
1: that's exactly right. I I am associate editor of Quadrant Magazine, so that's that's uh, that's my day job. So I work at Quadrant Magazine, which is a, a monthly magazine um, of sort of conservative and right wing uh, thought, focuses on politics, ideas, culture. Literary criticism, music has a whole range of things that it covers. Uh, and people can check that out at quadrant.com.au quadrant.org.au. I don't even know I am website. How bad's that? Anyway, you can look up quadrant in the uh, you can look up quadrant in the in the uh, the search engine, quadrant magazine, and find us uh, there. I'm also a research fellow at the law school at the University of Queensland. Um, and so I'm an academic as well, have a PhD in history and so it's funny that I'm in the law school, but I'm in the law school because I focus on the history of ideas and have a focus on law and politics uh, as well as um, the interactions between those two things and Christianity, the history of Christianity. And I'm also a, a fellow at the Danube Institute in Budapest. Um, so I've got uh, that affiliation as well, which is a think tank uh, based based in Hungary.
0: And you spent some time there. I think last time you were on the show, you were about to go there.
1: That's that's right when we that's right when we talked about um, Joram Hazoni's book I think we I was about to head over to Hungary and I've been over there for a few months come back and then went back again actually just recently I was there for a couple of weeks in residence at the Danube Institute and had a great time uh, did some research on Reinhold Niebuhr so anyone who's into political thought and Christianity will be uh, interest, you know keen on, on hearing more about that at some point but uh, the uh, looking at the issue of geopolitics, and Christian realism, and thinking about the relationship between nations. So this is this is obviously a very relevant topic at the moment. Unfortunately, yeah, we might have to do
0: a show on that at some point. That's yeah, a, that'd be realism is a really interesting thing to to look at. Yeah. Thanks for that intro. Now the, the topic of this conversation is going to be Eric Vogelin's uh, little but influential essay called "Science, Politics, and Gnosticism." which was published in 1968 by Regnery, that publisher of seminal conservative works in the 20th century. Eric Voegelin, for anyone who is unaware of him, was a German political scientist formerly, but I think really a political philosopher. And if you read the historiography of the right in America or conservatism, you'll know that he is in the pantheon of influential Right wing intellectuals and uh, thinkers, which is why he's of interest to you and me, Simon, as conservative intellectuals. I'm not sure if you embrace that term, but I do, and I'm just going to use it for you. That's fine. Whether you like it or not. I do. You're fine. You do. Okay. And he was born in 1901 in Germany. He died in 1985. Uh, He began his intellectual journey in Germany. He was at the University of Munich and in fact this essay Science, Politics and Gnosticism began as a lecture at the University of Munich in 1958 and was published in German the year after in 1959 so it took nine years before it uh, reached an English-speaking audience. I I don't know if uh, in your version Simon but mine doesn't credit a translator so when there's no translator credited I assume the author is the person that has translated it so he may have translated his own work and I believe he came to America in 1938 because I think he was a victim of the Nazis and lost his university uh, gig because he presumably did something naughty which wasn't hard to do in the fascist regime. Now Simon I want to briefly outline more for the sake of listeners than you because I know you've read the work like I have just the key idea or thesis and then I'm going to invite you to make some observations, reflections, reactions, um, tear what hair you have left out, depending <laughs> on your not, rational... There's not,
1: there's not much left. That's or problem. sing
0: the praises of mm-hmm. it, tell mm-hmm. people it's the greatest work ever concocted. So that the key idea is what I would describe as political Gnosticism, which is the term Vogelin uses. And his contention is that uh, really all modern movements or most modern movements of thought, both political and intellectual, Are variants of Gnosticism. And he gives as examples progressivism, positivism, Hegelianism, Marxism, communism, fascism, and perhaps quixotically, psychoanalysis. So these, he says, are all actually instances of Gnosticism, and that's the way to actually understand these political and intellectual movements. He gives us a few intellectual figures as examples of what I guess he would call Gnostic. Thinkers, and that's Marx, Hegel, Hobbes, and interestingly, Thomas More in his book Utopia. Now, one of the where the idea gets really interesting is that he is claiming that there's a continuity between ancient Gnosticism and these modern isms, and that really what we should be looking, the way we should understand them, is that as modern manifestations of a kind of constant trend that is in the human condition that goes all the way back to those Christian Gnostics that uh, you and I are familiar with and probably any Christian who's reasonably well-read in Christian history is aware of them. And he gives a couple of general uh, ideas about how to think of Gnosticism per se. So I stress again that there's this continuity idea so that by defining Gnosticism per se, he's offering some insight into the logic and impulse of contemporary political Gnostic movements, which are basically all of those movements on the left, I think you would say today, Simon, as well as some, yeah. some others. And he says, for example, that the, the kind of inner logic of Gnosticism is an experience of the world, I'm quoting now, as an alien place into which man has strayed and from which he must find his way back home to the other world of his origin. Uh, Another quote, which is, I think, very interesting, that starts to paint the picture of what this is all about. He says, Gnostic man no longer wishes to perceive in admiration the intrinsic order of the cosmos. For him, the world has become a prison from which he wants to escape. And listeners can probably begin to see how this might relate to things like Marxism and fascism and even, I think, uh, progressivism today even perhaps libertarianism, with their kind of notion of some kind of material salvation from a problematic condition or some kind of progress to a, a higher form of organization. And just finally, to cap this off, he helpfully identifies six characteristics of uh, what I think he describes as the Gnostic attitude. And this will have flesh once I run through this, Simon, I will have fleshed it out enough. I'm gonna throw the ball to you. So the first characteristic, which relates to the two quotes I read, is a dissatisfaction with the present situation. Second characteristic is the idea that the world is intrinsically poorly organized, which is really to say that the problem is the world, not man. So this, you know, the human being is not at fault for all of the the problems. It's the world, which leads to the third characteristic which is that salvation from the evil of the world is possible this poor organization which takes us to the fourth characteristic which is the order of being will have to be changed in a historical process so of course if the problem is in the structure of the world and it's not man then man needs to restructure the world and again i just remind listeners think through marxism fascism i guess other quintessential examples here of Uh, the use of power to recreate, you know, the world and reality. And the fifth characteristic is the idea that change in the order of being lies in the realm of human action. So man is responsible for his own salvation. And he notes later on that underpinning this whole idea is this rejection of God and the divine origin and telos of the cosmic order. And then the sixth characteristic and I really like this one. I think this is quite insightful. The Gnostic alone possesses knowledge of salvation, and therefore functions as a prophet for world salvation. Now, many listeners will be aware that "gnosis" in Greek means knowledge, and the, the sort of uh, the thing about the Gnostic is that they have unique knowledge into the problematic situation of the world and the solution to it. And therefore, they function like a prophet. I guess Marx might fit the bill here as the person who can see the change that needs to be uh, wrought because it's often not obvious to the, the common folk and then goes about doing it. So I, th- I hope, Simon, that's a sort of enough of an overview. It's not a long book. It's only like 87 pages long, but that'll spare listeners the the need to have read the book in order to follow this conversation. You're free to add, refine, nuance, uh, anything I've left out you think or you can even disagree if I've got something wrong. Uh, but what, uh, is that a good a sound outline? And more importantly, what do you make of this whole thesis?
1: Yeah, it is a sound outline. I was looking through my own notes as you were talking and uh, there's lots to talk about. I, I think one of the things that it would be good to flag at this point is we are – uh, this this is not, um, as we talk, uh, I'm thinking that this won't just be an exercise in sort of intellectual uh, gymnastics where we talk about whether these ideas are kind of good, bad, or interesting or otherwise. But actually, they, it, it, I was reading this, uh, this work in preparation for our conversation today and thinking about a number of manifestations of what Vogelin's uh, talking about here in, in our world today. So it would be really interesting. We'll get there eventually. I'm just flagging that for listeners. I think, I think this is applicable. I think this yeah. is uh, applicable today. I, I, as I was reading this at the start of the book and, and considering this idea of Gnosticism, I wrote my own summary of Gnosticism. And I said that Gnosticism recognizes the need for flight from the world or else the radical transformation of the world through through some sort of action and Vogelin has in mind political action in particular ancient gnosticism wasn't really politically radical it it actually was more spiritually radical and there was as you've described Jonathan the gnostic religions including gnostic christianity had a kind of elite class that had special knowledge and often, often that, that knowledge thought of the world, indeed, as Vogelin says, as problematic, that the structure mm. of the world was wrong or evil or out of order and needed to be adjusted. But it wasn't necessarily the case in ancient Gnosticism that people believed they could adjust the order of the world. And there's a significant shift in the way that people think across Western history at some point, which I think we'll come to soon, where people start to think that they are the ones, they are the agents of change in the structure of the world. Ancient Gnosticism Mm -hmm. didn't have that dynamic as much. And so I think that's an important point that there's to point out at this point in the conversation that there's a a distinction here between the ancient forms of Gnosticism and what Vogelin's describing. But the thing that is uh, significant in the continuities between these two forms of Gnosticism is that the world is out of order. And the world is a bad place, <laughs> and and but but yeah, ancient Gnosticism had a sort of escapist attitude, rather than a transformationalist attitude. So that's the first that's, a, I was, that's the first point I was I was thinking on of reflecting on as I was reading this.
0: Yeah, that's a that's a really good observation, I think, Simon. And and you're dead right that the Gnostics of old it was, it was such an esoteric and almost occultish um type of uh community really that they they did not function as the prophet they didn't serve that prophet function of leading the masses into the light <laughs> of the restructure like you say they but but i guess uh, uh in when Vogelland identifies continuity he's not suggesting they're identical but he is drawing attention to commonalities between them. And this was his original idea, I think. Well, actually, he says, he kind of says that in the German tradition, uh, people identified Gnostic thought all the way through, I think. I think he does say that he got the continuity point from other German thinkers. But I think, if I'm not mistaken, he's the first to really identify these contemporary political and intellectual movements with ancient Gnosticism. And as far as I could gather, that is his major contribution and I think there's a personally I think there's enough continuity there for that to be a credible idea so big tick to Vogelin for that but you go on with your observations
1: yeah I know I I, I agree with I agree with your assessment of Vogelin I think that's that's right that so the discontinuity I'm pointing out isn't isn't uh, a problem for his thesis at all Uh, it's just an important Distinction to make. The interesting thing that Vogelin does early on in the book is he contrasts this uh, this Gnosticism with Christianity, and so he sees Christianity as not simply a foil for Gnosticism, but actually fundamentally off, it offer, offering a fundamentally different vision of order. And it's not just political order, but it's the way that political order is embedded in a larger cosmic order. Gnostics and Gnosticism posit an order that's, that's I guess, disordered, that, that, that needs to be changed. Uh, Christianity holds that there is a given order and that it really can't be fundamentally shifted as such and that we need to adapt to the given order. Gnostics think that we are the agents of change for the overall cosmic order. If you will, although they wouldn't. I mean, I guess that modern Gnostics will come to this, but modern Gnostics wouldn't necessarily think of it as a, a cosmic order in the sense that a, a, re, a religious, a sort of uh, the supernaturalist religious vision would. But, but, but I think this contrast with Christianity is important because um, uh, he, uh, that is Vogel, and identifies the importance of the idea of an overarching order for the vision for the vision that Christianity has for. For the world, and specifically for politics, and that means that it is not uh, politically radical, and that it doesn't produce a political radicalism. Uh, whereas his his overall thesis is that these modern uh, n- forms of Gnosticism uh, often not or not always, but often result in a, a kind of political radicalism.
0: Yeah, and I th- and the the other thing he observes, which I think is quite neat, which ties into your observation there, Simon, is that these Gnostic political movements, contemporary, what they do is uh, suppress, I think is the term he uses, aspects of reality, which makes sense, given what you were just saying about the idea that there is a given reality that has a divine origin and the, the soul kind of has this inbuilt desire to move towards uh, its divine origin. And so any movement away from the intrinsic, divinely ordered uh, reality of the cosmos is to pervert reality. And he also identifies, and I like this epistemologically, and I think this carries, irrespective of what you think about the whole Gnostic thesis, but he identifies that a lot of the thinking in these isms is speculative that is it's really not empirical it's uh (laughs) there's a lot of speculation although he's thinking of this in terms of you know once you uh, turn away from the divine reality of the sort of order of of life then you are forced into speculation because you're you've turned your back on reality now i could make criticisms of that of his view as well and and just to keep dropping things we will probably never come to, but at least let the listeners <laughs> know we intended to. If we yes, yes, good. We don't. I, I do want. I would like to critically interrogate with you this this whole notion of a divinely ordered cosmos and what that really means, and also how useful that is for politics.
1: Sure. So there's a, there's a nice quote from the book where he says, "Gnostic man this summarizes the point. Gnostic man no longer wishes." to perceive in admiration the intrinsic order of the cosmos. For him, that is for the Gnostic man, the world has become a prison from which he wants to escape. So there's the, the contrast between the the idea of an intrinsic order, which I think is a nice way of framing it, intrinsic order of the cosmos versus the order of the cosmos being a prison and we need to escape it. Uh, now, th- there's this, I think... At some point, we'll come to discussing. We will come to discussing the intellectual shift that occurs in Western ideas that brings this rejection of the intrinsic order of the cosmos about. But let's, yeah, let's let's talk about this idea of an intrinsic or, or cosmic order. Uh, just in terms of the history of ideas, this this is uh, this is an idea that's present in ancient Greek thought, Roman thought, and Christian thought. So there's a real continuity between the the Greco-Roman, uh, Judeo-Christian, in the in the Hebrew mind as well, there is an overarching cosmic order. The divine being, whether it's Yahweh uh, in the Bible, whether it's the Roman gods, the Greek gods, uh, the the divine, the, the order of the world and of reality is set up by something uh, that is... Oh, this this gets technical, doesn't it? Because now I'm just going to say outside of reality. If it's a Christian conception, they're outside of created reality. The God, the God who creates things is outside of created reality. It's muddier. It's muddier in the Greek and Roman view. But let's just say generally speaking, there's something over it, over the created ordered cosmos uh, that's shaping the order. Of the world, and uh, now the Gnostics believe that too. But the, the the difference with the ancient Gnostics is that they believe that a, um, a malevolent a malevolent being has shaped the order of the cosmos, and that's why it needs to be escaped or changed. But mm-hmm. in the in the Christian let's let's talk about it in the in the Christian sense because that's the milieu that we're we're sort of a, we're still in, I guess, to an extent, and emerging from in 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 many ways. Um, in the Christian uh, understanding of this. The, the order of reality is is given. and so your question about politics is interesting. what does this have to do with politics? well this I guess I guess what I would say is that because the order of reality is given by a uh, by the divine, that has ethical implications. And it has ethical implications because the way that things are made point to their purpose and point to their uh, point to how those things should behave, be interacted with uh, and be say deployed or used. if you're if you're a human being, you think about how, how should I how can I use the things around me to to make the world a better place. Uh, for example, the, the, this has this idea of a, a given order has ethical implications and politics is the working out of human action in community. So the given divine order has implications for politics by virtue of the fact that the, the order of the reality is ethical inherently. So I guess that's the, the high-level philosophical justification, I think, mm-hmm. for why this has political ramifications.
0: See, I think I would um, I would be inclined, I think, to make a distinction between created order and political order. And as you know, and some listeners may know, I did my PhD on Oliver O'Donovan. So I learned about this whole notion of created order from him and I'm very influenced by his book, Resurrection and Moral Order. And I, and I think the created order, certainly I agree with you, has ethical implications but I would make a distinction between the created order and political order. And I actually think that a divine political order is not revealed in scripture actually, mm. and that it's patently open to lots of creative possibilities yeah. based on the human being. Maybe that you could attribute that to Imago Deo, which then does bring in <laughs> some divine origin, perhaps to the creative political potential of, uh, Human beings, and so the the term in Vogelin's thought that that I uh, this was my second reading of it, and this this really I found problematic than the first time I read it, which is not just there's plenty in this that I that I like actually, but uh, this notion of a divine order that he certainly by implication seems to suggest has big political implications. Given he's contrasting this with these political gnostic movements in the contemporary world that have rejected the divine order, which kind of suggests that that there is some politics that is supposed to follow or flow from the divine order, and of course, you know, you just gave one definition of politics, which is perfectly fine. But the problem is that the concept, the definitions, are stipulative, and so you can, yeah. it's not, it's not like. Um, Water, where the semantic boundary uh, match- has a natural uh, sort of boundary in nature. Politics, we decide where the semantic boundary of the term is because it denotes a complex human uh, phenomenon. And so I, when, I, when I think politics, I'm like, okay, so let's assume Vogel's right and that there's a divine order and that the, uh, all the contemporary political movements in our world uh, not even his, are uh, in some way Gnostic, which means they're trying to escape. They think that that divine order is a prison, like you said. I think to myself, okay, so how do you set up your institutions on the basis of this divine order? I mean, is it Australia's constitution? It's parliamentary democracy. You have a high court. You have a federal system. or well, some countries don't have a federal system. And then more practically... How do you do your budget? You know, how do you spend your money on? Is welfare just? How much should it be? What's your foreign policy going to be? Taxation? Uh, do you have a free market? There's nothing in scripture about free markets, for example. So I, I mean, I'm just kind of uh, speaking out, sharing with you my kind of reflection on on this, which does force me to question whether there's a limitation. Uh, a greater limitation than Vogelin perhaps uh, is aware with this kind of gnostic lens, interpretive lens, which I do find fascinating and stimulating and i and i i'm I want to be clear, I'm not rejecting it outright. I'm just questioning its its actual explanatory power. What do you make of that?
1: <laughs> yeah, oh, no, no no i i I'm with you i th- I think uh, it does have limitations. It has limitations for the reason that you say. In Vogelin's defence, uh, his big, bigger project, uh, which, where, where he examines the history of political ideas, he, he does this examination through the lens of uh, or, uh, the given order and then how different human communities have wrestled with the fact <laughs> that there is a tension between, okay, there's a given order... And we have to somehow uh, instantiate human politics in the face of that, and how different appropriations of the divine order say in different times, in different places, by different groups of people, have resulted in different expressions of political community. So I don't think that he—I mean, I, I'm not exactly sure, actually, whether whether he would say there there must be one perfect order because mm. there is a divine order. Um, I my so I guess I just don't know enough about all the things that he thinks. However, I would I would, in his defence, say, look, that it seems to me like he recognises that limitation. In 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 practical reality, that there, there are going to be different expressions of this. So I think I think that's a good point. And I and I think you know, particularly on the point of Christianity and on political theology in the Christian tradition, you're dead right that there is no it, 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 there is no political prescriptions. Oh, sorry, there there are political prescriptions in scriptures. The scriptures but they're not they're not ones about the particular the very particular ordering of political community except except in the narrow instance of uh the mosaic polity which um which is a narrow instance in a particular time in a particular place for particular people which illustrates the point actually uh that that there are there are real limitations around this concept it it does it, it but do, i guess i wonder whether it, it calls into question his overall point which is that. Uh, you, there is a turning point at some point in history where he, how he, he puts it is that the power of being, that is the power of, uh, he's really saying the power of, of the human person replaces the power of God mm. in in human thinking about politics. And I think this is the key shift that he's interested in. So even though, yeah, there are political theological limitations with that overarching concept of divine order and a sort of teleological view of politics in relation to the divine order, which is expressed by people like Aristotle, Plato, but particularly in the Aristotelian tradition through to Aquinas and others after that. Yeah, there are issues and tensions in there. His main point actually is that uh, in Western thought, the human person begins to replace the divine in how we think about manipulating reality and shaping it and forming it and ordering it.
0: This is why it's good to have this conversation with a proper historian because you are sensitive to the historical nature of his argument and I do think he's he's on strong ground there and and I actually think his greatest insight is the continuity point because it draws our attention to the fact that new what what seems to be prima facie completely novel political movements and ideas like fascism and marxism both seem totally unprecedented historically uh what i like about vogel is he he opens your mind to the possibility that actually we're seeing ancient impulses and kind of constants of human nature and of existence playing themselves out in new manifestations which which suggest that there, there's something permanent about well, in this case, Gnosticism, and I do think there's there's something uh, to that, but I'm not a historian, so I don't read it as a historian. I guess I read it more as a political philosopher, if I could dare uh, describe myself in that that vein. But I think you're you're also very you're, your kind of defense is very fair because. What he's really doing is diagnostics. He's not trying to treat the malady in this case. What he's doing is really trying to do what what very few secular contemporary isms do, which I find quite irksome because it's just such a glaring, gaping hole in their political ideologies, which is explain a particular aspect of our reality, which is that right now tens of thousands of people are slaughtering each other in at least two wars, if not More and there's this plenty of you know the the human being is is a quite a rapacious and problematic animal and in particular a political society even if there is a given order it's not something that comes easily to human beings and it's, it's something precarious and vulnerable and we have countless examples of societies collapsing or trying to wipe each other out and Vogelin, to his credit, and this is something you do get from Christianity, for example, per se, I think, is a an explanation that can account for the broad sweep of historical examples. The fact that you know, you mentioned the the Greeks; they had a big civil war when the Corinthian when the um, you know Spartans and Athenians, uh, you know, after they united to uh, defeat the Persians, they basically destroyed their civilization pretty pretty much all the way through to today with Ukraine and what we see in Israel and, and Gaza. And whatever you think of Vogelin, see, he has an explanation for that, which is that once you turn your back on God and the divine given order, then you enter into this perverted uh, situation where you convince yourself that you're trapped in, in a kind of hellscape that you need to get out of. And the only way you can do it is... Through your own knowledge and gnosis and one thing I like about this thinking about this as a conservative and I think there's an appeal here to a conservative and this is one thing that arguably makes this a conservative philosophical view is this suspicion of gnosis and I think we do live in a highly technocratic age where expertise is uh, perhaps uh, I don't want to say overvalued because I actually value expertise, but it's it's given a kind of epistemological footing and authority that it doesn't necessarily deserve. And I think uh, conservatives place a greater emphasis on experience and tradition and collective values, views, and ideas. That's this Kirkian idea, which I guess he gets from Burke, that you know providence works itself out. By the survival of traditions and ideas from generation to generation and so what proves itself through intergenerational uh, passage and legacy is sort of what is true and good and uh, so I think there is a kind of conservative epistemology underlying this I'm not sure how I got to that because that's not where I started but you can do what you want with, yeah,
1: that. I, I think no, I th- yeah I, th- I think you're right, I think you're right that there there is a conservative epistemology underlying this. It actually comes it's illustrated quite well in his contrast towards the start where he contr- he, he he contrasts different kinds of analysis, and he talks about uh, political science being the analysis of order and its underlying conditions. And he says that's what political science fundamentally is. Uh, but then he says, "Well, there's this uh, there's this new phenomenon. That's interesting. He calls it a new phenomenon, uh, even though he's saying there's continuity. But he's I th- maybe he's talking about it in a uh, contemporary sense that there's a new phenomenon. There are persons who know their opinions will not stand up under critical analysis, and they make the absence of this critical analysis part of their dogma. They prohibit questions. He said, mm. and that strikes me as a very." Uh, very un- unconservative attitude to prohibit. It's funny, isn't it? Because most people on the left will probably say conservatives just uh, go along with the flow and they just care about tradition and everything that comes from the past and they don't question anything. I, I think Vogelin here is actually making a great point, which is that the conservative interest in empiric, empiric, empirical experience, uh, in the wisdom of the ages in and so on, Actually, is uh, analytically more sound than this gnostic, gnostic attitude, which actually prohibits questions and analysis, um, and it leans completely on speculation. Now, people the people like Mark, he calls he calls on Marx and Nietzsche and Hegel in particular uh, as the big sort of big three thinkers who illustrate his point, particularly at the turn the turning towards Gnosticism in the nineteenth century, and he. He particularly shows that Marx. Oh, he he uses uh, a phrase which I can't remember now. But he basically he basically says Marx is a bit of a. Um, he's like an int- uh, No, I can't remember now. He he he, he uses a phrase where uh, he basically says Marx is sort of an intellectual fraud to to and that that will that will grate people, <laughs> but it's because Marx, Marx's um, analysis in scare quotes. Actually, doesn't lend itself to analysis, to empirical analysis. Uh, so this is this is an interesting contrast, which comes, I think, to what to what you're saying about the conservative attitude toward ideas and towards um, the the empirical and experience and so on.
0: Yeah, that's a really interesting part of his thought, and it makes me want to introduce Plato and Aristotle here, because there is this interesting Platonic element to Vogelin's uh, Thought here, and and the term political science, epistemi, mm. and he writes it in the Greek in in italics, which is a term that uh, Aristotle uses in uh, I think Politics and maybe the Nicomachean Ethics uh, as well. So he he really means political science in this Greek concept, and you gave a good uh, overview of what it means there. And it's, there's this kind of underlying Platonic. Epistemology, I think, where you start to get, you start to feel the presence of Plato's allegory of the caves here, and that the what the Gnostics do, and you're right, Marx is, is the key exemplar here, is they elevate speculation, which is to say, opinion, doxa, and that's so a word so the word that Plato statics. uses,
1: right? He contrasts yeah. Science, or, yeah, episteme with opinion, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah which which is a, a classic platonic distinction i think is a very powerful one and so the 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 whole sort of plato's whole pursuit is how do you get beyond opinion to the truth of existence the good the beautiful uh the true and of course this is where the his forms come in and this kind of reality that sits beyond the material existence and that the you know, if you go to Plato's Republic, the philosopher king can ultimately get out of the cave and see this and then goes back into the cave to rule the, the people because all they can see are the shadows on on the wall, um, blah, blah, blah. But, but this gets to this point of uh, reality, and, 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 I, and I do like this, actually, notwithstanding my, my sort of uh, gentle criticism earlier, this, this idea that, uh, you know, take Marxism, we know a lot of it is speculative because his economic theories were just dead wrong and have been proved so in my view. Uh, but, of course, they were elevated to the status of historical laws. Science, Jonathan. Science, yeah. Science. And and treated by enough people as such that whole societies ruined themselves trying to restructure uh, along these lines. And so he... He outlines this role for the political scientist but also the political philosopher. And I'll read a quote or two in a sec because I noted some down here that their role, like you say, is to really follow this platonic ideal and get out of the cave and see reality for what it is above and beyond the opinion. And I guess the, the, the key aspect of reality and really the only one we're given is the idea of divine... Uh, order but let me this will help listeners just read a couple of um, quotes here he says of philosophy that it springs from the love of being it is man's loving endeavor to perceive the order of being and attune himself to it Gnosis desires dominion over being in order to seize control of being the Gnostic constructs his system so this I guess this brings this speculation point so there there's a, a fundamental distortion of reality at the heart of all these political Gnosticisms. and again, I remind people that we, you know, put progressivism in there or whatever ism uh, you want. And in a sense, this is where I think I think this is what his fraud point is with Marx, and I think he he basically says Nietzsche and others were frauds too, is that they they know this this isn't really reality. So, they the fork in the road for them is to amend. Their philosophy, so that it accords with reality, or to reconstruct reality, <laughs> so that That's it makes right. their yeah. speculation uh, true. And I, and I, again, I, I think there's something very intriguing about that that I find very yeah. stimulating. And it is quite <coughs> novel. Maybe I find it novel because no one thinks like this anymore. Right. Uh, I don't know how novel it was in the sixties. Um, he said he
1: says another point he describes philosophy as in the sense of Marx and Nietzsche he says that philosophy is an act of rebellion uh, yeah. it's an act of rebellion against the uh, what they think is the the given order uh, a loosening of the bonds of the God or gods it's a gnostic exercise of human will to liberate oh, these are, these are just some phrases that he uses or some ideas that he throws out there. It's it's quite different to what uh, to what Plato talks about, isn't it? That in you, you, in, in Plato, at least you, you know you ascend you ascend out of the cave and see reality for what it is, and then go back and try and help people live in light of that. But yeah. but in in the case of these Gnostic thinkers, uh, uh, Marx and Nietzsche, uh, but also I think Hegel, uh, it's actually an act of rebellion um, against. Uh, a set of ideas that tell you there's a given order so yeah. this is this is quite a contrast really
0: yeah and what, what i like about this is this this is a very different conception of philosophy the task of the philosopher and the political scientist today don't you think yeah it is absolutely my like political science as far as i can see <laughs> is totally technocratic now and working with and knowing some political scientists who are kind of secular or not people of faith i mean all they try to do all day, every day is solve practical problems yeah. in the material world that we live in. So political science is really a tool. They're using data often, aren't they? And outcomes, yeah, to to inform policymakers so they can do the the right thing. And uh, who knows what philosophers do? I guess they, <laughs> they worry about, the, uh, about grammar. They're kind of bad linguists in a way, boring linguists. They are. <laughs> well, that's the analytic tradition. And then the continental, they... Don't even write in, in any no. intelligible language. So, again, it's about linguistics. That's right.
1: That's right. Yeah. Well, and- I'm talking
0: for a historian, so I'm not going to get any disagreement there.
1: <laughs> no, you and I agree about this. The uh, the His point, though, about, I think, again, coming back to his conception of political science uh, being uh, an anal- the analysis of order and its underlying conditions. It's a it's a profound conception of political science, and this is why he's. I'm guessing this is why he's called a professor of political science, even though, really, when you read him, he's always doing political philosophy, Uh, and that's 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 because he he actually is doing political science in the original sense.
0: Yeah, Simon. One one of the interesting questions about this is, uh, and and I I should have read up on this. I don't know whether vogan was a man of faith and what kind of faith and tradition he came out of but of course for christians like us reading this we are not new to the notion of gnosticism but when we think of gnosticism uh we think of the early church and a a sort of heresy and uh, you know that's the context that we know this term uh gnosticism and he he does bring Christianity into the conversation in this essay at various points. And he says a couple of interesting things that I want to just state for the benefit of listeners. And I'd be interested to get your response. And really the, the way to frame this as a question is um, where does Christianity feature in all this? Cause he talks a lot about divine. Hmm. Uh, I, I'm not sure Jesus really gets much of a mention. I don't think the Bible really gets much of a mention. The Bible's never quoted. I, I, don't recall the word church coming up so it's not it doesn't really feel like a political theology and you very well you very nicely outlined that that divine thing when it's that vague it could be greek or roman uh not necessarily christian in any event he makes uh, these observations he says quote all gnostic movements are involved in the project of abolishing the constitution of being with its origin in divine transcendent being there's that term doesn't never mentions god either i don't think if i'm mistaken and replacing it with a world imminent order of being the perfection of which lies in the realm of human action now we've kind of talked around that but he then says this is an immanentization of the christian idea of perfection which lies beyond this world so the the whole logic of christianity is like you said it recognizes I think it can generally recognize the same problem. There's violence, there's injustice, there's death, there's inequality, et cetera, et cetera, but salvation lies out of this world, and that is really exemplified in the way that God enters the world through the incarnation, but the Christ, after he rises, ascends back into heaven, and it's up there in heaven (laughs) that the Christian believer expects to sort of end up after death, and that's reflected even in some of the political vocabulary of the New Testament, such as in Philippians, I think it's three-something or other. I'm terrible with biblical verses where Paul talks about our citizenship being in heaven. Sure. Sure. So there, there is this ultimate goal. It's Augustine's great twin cities thing where, where pilgrims are just passing through this material existence, which is why we have to work with those who are not destined for our end, but we're ultimately our destination destination doesn't lie uh, here and so I, I think this is quite a powerful idea in terms of illuminating these secular political movements that there is this kind of search for perfection and I often think to myself what is the end goal of prog- progressivism because it it kind of banks on the fact that there are problems to address so is there kind of an end point where we get to the <laughs> paradise on on uh, earth but Notwithstanding that, the the question I'm really interested in is uh, what you as a Christian make of of make of this. How Christian is this kind of idea? Because on first glance, Christianity is part of it, but then I'm not so sure it is that bigger part of it. Actually, the more I think about it.
1: So I think what Vogelin's doing, <clears throat> pardon me. I think what Vogelin's doing is he is taking Christianity. As the most recent manifestation of the ancient conception of a given cosmic order, and saying this is in contrast to the Gnostic radical conception of an imminent uh, an imminent order that's malleable and we can transform it into in, into what we want it to be. I don't. I don't. Kn- that's what it seems to me that he's doing in this particular text. Hmm. I actually don't know what Vogelin's convictions were in terms of his, he, he, whether he believed he believed in God, whether he was a Christian, uh, and there are there are examples of thinkers who in, in, in this in this period. Who actually? Thinkers you come from Germany. Uh, I mean, where he's where he emerges from, the context he emerges from is a really one of the the richest, the richest uh, intellectual milieus ever. Mm. Uh, it, it, ironically, Germany between the wars um, uh, is an incredible. Uh, place intellectually but he emerges from there and a lot of people who come from there don't necessarily have religious convictions but i think they recognize the importance of a religious framework um and so uh, i'm not sure exactly what he what he's doing in this space it seems mm. to me that maybe that explanation that he takes really christianity as the the primary conception of cosmic order that he's and that that in the into he's speaking into a context which is which is uh culturally and intellectually christian and so he uses that as the example i i, want, I wonder what what he would say about islam um mm. because it seems to me that islam in one sense is more like and i should say like certain forms of islam are more like the political gnosticism that he's describing having said that there are certain forms of christianity that have <clears throat> manifested themselves in in a more radical Gnostic way, he uses the example of the millenarianism of the Puritans mm. in the 17th yeah. century, which is a classic example that historians use of uh, po- political radicalism that is framed by an immunization of Christian eschatology. And by mm. that I mean, uh, they're, they're, they're big words to use, so apologies to listeners, let me translate that. What, what that means is that Christians basically bring heaven down to earth and that's that, you know the puritans i think what they're doing is defensible i'm sympathetic to some of their their attempts to to, to do that although not entirely so don't don't get too worried jonathan or anyone else who's listening but w- I, I understand what they're what they're doing in the 17th century but they but there is something about what they're doing that's that seems to me to be what vogelin calls immunitizing the eschaton which mm. is trying to instantiate uh, paradise on earth which which actually is a politically radical thing to do it's interesting there's another thinker who's writing around this time uh about uh about the same time actually a bit earlier though carl carl lewitt who's a, another exile from germany uh and a philosopher writes um a book on history and he talks about the same the same kinds of dynamics but specifically to do with philosophy of history and he says you know we've gone from augustine who ensures that the eschaton and the arrival of the perfect world happens after history is finished and then over time you uh have a radicalization of that view through people like Joachim of Fiore who was a medieval thinker who sort of chat who who Dr- dr- drastically altered this philosophy of history and then he he basically says that people like Marx and Hegel and into the 20th century a number of thinkers basically take Christian eschatology but then immunitize it they make it about what's going to happen on earth and so there is that's what he thinks that's where the idea of progress comes from so this is hmm. what Lewith argues and you can definitely see some parallels with what Vogelin argues which is that we are taking a, a religious idea, and quite an amazing, you know, dynamic religious idea, but we are taking what should be understood as happening kind of after history, and bringing it into history, and then that creates more radical political activity. So this is a dynamic I think that's in Vogelin's thought as well, and I only use Lewith as an example of a parallel thinker who's thinking along the same lines at the same time to show that people, other people, are recognizing this dynamic as well. This isn't just something that Vogelin's kind of coming up with. Sui generis, I think people must have been talking about it in, in in intellectual circles. Interestingly, Lewis is also working in the United States when he's writing this book as well. So this, this, is, this, I think, is what Vogelin is interested in to do with Christianity. He doesn't think Christianity is fundamentally radical, though, does he? He, he thinks actually it's a more conservative force politically and historically, but if you distort one aspect of its doctrine, it becomes radicalised.
0: Yeah, I think uh, just before I say, what I was going to say, just just one way of encapsulating what you're, well, not encapsulating what you're saying there, but you know, an idea that dropped into my mind is you could argue or at least ponder whether the immanentization of the eschaton is a kind of inexorable consequence of the secularization of religion and because by definition then salvation becomes the responsibility of, Human beings. This is this is, is exactly what Carl Lewis window. argues. It's exactly what Carl yeah. Lewis argues. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I, I've definitely that. That's a view I've long held, even before I encountered Vogelin. So uh, I think Vogelin's dead right on that front. But the actual thing I want to say before I uh, almost waylaid my myself there with that pointless digression at the beginning. Of- <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to make a point, but just before I make it, I'm going to make something, just say something that I don't need to say, so that it's hard to remember what I was going to nice. uh, say. But I, I actually think that it it's quite common in this era for conservatives, and I, and I would put Russell Kirk in this category, where the Christianity in it is a kind of historical, cultural, political force, and you often feel like its function is more. Socio-political than theological, if that right. makes sense. Right. I guess. I guess the point I'd make is there's very little theology in all these conservative works, and you really notice that actually when you read today conservative political uh, theology. Uh, someone like Van Drunen, yeah, um, who I met at a dinner not that long ago and saw yeah. speak here in, in Australia, and his book where he's working from the Noahic Covenant and his whole view of politics is is uh i think problematic on some notions but it's a genuine conservative political theology he probably wouldn't use the co- term conservative because he's got this mm. conservative liberalism type picture in there but setting that a uh, that aside it, it's attentive to the bible and it takes it seriously and it's and the church seriously and it's trying to understand political order ironically in a way like, like Vogel talks about this kind of somewhat vague and opaque divine order, whereas with Van Drunen, and this is my point, it really goes into the Noahic covenant and its consequence and the Abrahamic covenant and different Bible verses and the way the gospel works out. And Mm. you look at Oliver O'Donovan and the Christ event is this hinge in history that changes the nature of political order through authority. There, my point is you've got like genuine theology, people who are theologically literate and trying to apply Theology uh, to the political realm. Whereas what you get with Kirk and Vogel and quite a few others is they all, like you say, think Christianity is historically really important and that it's socially and culturally very important. But it's not so much in its theological detail as in its function. And I think one thing, one way to read Vogel, and I got this from you, Simon. Just I'm just riffing off what you're saying, is that you're never really sure whether he thinks the Christian vision, and I mean, there's a hundred of them anyway. So which which one are we talking about? You know, Catholic, Puritan, Orthodox, but they generally take serious the idea of an intrinsic divine order, and that's really their key virtue, I think, and is what contrasts them with what what he do, a place he doesn't go, but it you could logically go if you accept his premises, which is that. Marxism is a Christian heresy just like fascism and all these things because they kind of ditch the god part. <laughs> yeah. And uh you know like the immanentization of uh eschatology is arguably a kind of Christian heresy.
1: That's exactly right. Yeah, and that, that fits in with the, gnostic, the gnosticism. I mean, gnosticism was a heresy, an ancient yeah. heresy, and what he what I, th- I mean that, that's that's what Vogel is, is saying. He's saying it's like a modern political heresy, modern philosophical heresy, and it works itself out in a really messy way. So he he talks about how you go with someone like Hegel, who I think he he, he thinks Hegel is a gnostic because his philosophy is largely uh, speculative. And uh, it is then built upon by Marx and that Marx, along with Nietzsche, uh, basically uh, remove God from uh, our philosophical reflection and our political reflection and then move toward a secular uh, political framework, which actually has a sort of es- has an eschatological frame. Nietzsche not, is not, not so much. I mean, he talk- Vogelin talks about Nietzsche's will to power and uh, particularly his death of God thesis. He goes into it quite a bit. But the immunitization theory, I think, is a really powerful one because this is exactly what Marx does. And this is actually what we're seeing work out today in Western societies. People are calling it cultural marxism i'm not sure that that's the Mm. right phrase i think it's more maoist actually and i know uh, a book which argues that quite powerfully that what we're seeing is actually more maoism rather than marxism but that's a whole other topic the immunization um thesis requires the precondition that the order of being can be altered by humans now if the order of being is created and put in place and in a way controlled providentially by a divine being we can't do anything about that. We have to mm. fit in as best we can with the existing order of being. Marx uh, and vogelin saying Marx and Nietzsche, and then spinning out from that, lots of other people. In the removal of God from that picture, and the removal of the divine from this idea of the order of being, they then uh, bring in the possibility that man or humans can can alter the order of being. And indeed, they should. <laughs> that's that's the key point that Vogelin's making. They should alter it because there are lots of things wrong with it, and we should act to change it. And, and I think this works itself out in Marxism and socialism in the 20th century and in fascism, and these are the things that Vogelin particularly reflects on. But today, I think we see it in the radical social movements that are occurring in the modern in 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 the west today and if you think about a uh you know just to just to bring up a a, a really um, uncontroversial topic jonathan for your podcast something like the transgender movement that is a really clear example of of a movement which thinks that we can alter the order of being if you think about it they're, they're people who are trying to manipulate uh people's bodies and in some cases children's bodies to fit with their internal desires and this is an example of a manipulation of the order of being uh, that I think Vogelin's talking
0: about. It's so fascinating that you said that because that's exactly where I was going to go and you really helped me unlock, I uh, think, something about this uh, thesis of Vogelin's there because I, I thought of exactly the same example and it's, this is why I think actually that distinction I I. Proffered earlier on is uh, potentially valuable here because you're right. The idea that a um, woman can have a penis is totally gnostic, and this is where Vogelin has some insight that that because that that's not a a reading of that situation. I've heard in contemporary society, no. uh, Simon, but uh, it is a kind of gnostic heresy to the extent that it tries to recreate. Uh, an immovable, an aspect of the immovable order of being through surgery and yeah. different presentation. And Hormones and so on. Yeah. Getting people to go along with what I regard to be the lie of that situation. That uh, But that, that is quite different from political order. Yeah. And, and here I do think your man, Calvin, was right, and I do believe he said there is no Christian polity in the Bible, yep. or towards to the to that effect, and this I think is why Vogelin is perhaps judiciously quite vague, because the reality is, Christians today and in the past cannot agree on what the right political Christian political order is. In fact, they've gone different different churches of and regimes have gone to a war with each other in the past over that question, and the the fact that there's so much disagreement shows that there isn't. I don't think there is an intrinsic uh political order uh but that's quite different from this order of being concept and I think the the power of this gnostic insight with things like Marxism and let's say wokism is probably a, the better the best ism yeah. to use today is it's not so much it's not so much that their politics it's it's what they do to reality. They, they funk some basic aspects of reality. And this goes to the suppression, speculation, lying, distortion piece. And that does have consequences, including uh, political consequences. But, but I do think it's important, and I'm not sure he really maintains this distinction through the essay. I'd have to reread it now that I've had this idea. But I think as long as we distinguish political order from the divine order of being then I think we're actually okay. Yep.
1: Yeah, I think that's fair. Uh I think that's fair. Uh but,
0: but Simon. Sorry to cut you off, you're going to say something very profound there. But but I have an even better uh, thing to throw at you because I I want to throw you a curly criticism of conservatism. Because there'll be some listeners uh thinking to themselves, and I'm conscious of this, well conservatism is an ism like the others. And so I'm going. I'm going to play devil's advocate and say, isn't there a strong sense in which today's so-called conservatives have also imminentized the eschaton and are working furiously to bring about a certain society here on earth that a critic or an outsider might say is starting to look a little paradisical? <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah. Okay. I the that's a, it's it's an interesting question. So. I have some examples in mind. I wonder whether you do. You want to do you want to make this more concrete and give me an example? I mean, I'm thinking of the integralists or something like that, who might be considered conservative, but actually we're seeing they're a bit more radical
0: than than conservative in some ways. Well, well, the way they think? Do, yeah. you have, do you have examples? I'll, I'll give you another example. That that's that's fine. But I, I don't. I'm just going to be honest. I don't know enough. No, no. About that. That's that's something. A topic I want to dive into at some point. but Just haven't had the chance. But. Let's let's. – I'll give you a really concrete example. Let's take the massive and enduring evangelical support for Donald Trump in the US, which seems premised on this apocalyptic oh, yeah. reading of the political situation in the US, which is that the republic faces an existential threat from one of its historic political parties in the form of the Democrats to the extent that they will um, – Support someone who is pretty patently unchristian mm. and with complete hypocrisy from their view of uh, uh, Bill Clinton and his indiscretions in the office. And this idea, and I'll just remind you, these are evangelicals. So these are Christians who are supposed to believe that uh, the eschaton mm. is coming down the road and salvation. Mm. Isn't actually in in politics, but well, well, actually, I mean, isn't this in a sense gnostic? So they're trapped in this horrible world that's uh, on the precipice of doom and destruction. They need to escape from it, so they employ not a Christian leader, but their Cyrus or wh- whatever uh, you know, sort of non-Hebrew. <laughs> figure they come in the wrecking boards to come in and um you know recreate it i mean that it's kind of very imminent and it the thing i've always found perplexing from a theological perspective is i i want to say to them uh i can only conclude you think god has abandoned this world his church and his people in america because you you act as though salvation is in the hands of man and that you have to extricate yourself from this world that you now feel alienated in because I can only assume God's completely abandoned the world because you're not acting like you have a lot of faith that whatever happens in America, (laughs) history will work itself out uh, in the end. Now, I don't know, is that a good example or not?
1: No, no, it's it's a helpful one in the sense that I think – we can, like you and I, can agree with some of the critiques that you're making of this this dynamic in the US. But I think it also illustrates a, p- a point that I can push back on, uh, which is to say that I don't think Vogelin's critique of of the Gnostic impulse or attitude extends to all political action. Uh, mm-hmm. I I I th- I think that. Acting politically is still legitimate, even in Vogelin's framework. So the danger with taking that critique of the pro-Trumpist evangelicals in the US and saying Vogelin says you're all wrong is that it implies that there's no, there is a, there's a kind of, there's, there's, everyone that if you're if you're not a Gnostic, you should be quietist and just accept the order that you have. I'm not sure. I'm not sure whether that that holds, and I don't think that's consistent with what Vogelin is talking about. Vog, um, there will be elements within the Trump, the pro-Trump, uh, evangelical movement in the U.S. that are highly gnostic, and indeed, the dispensationalist. Uh, you know, Christ is coming back imminently. Uh, this is a, a kind of, This is not just a political crisis; it's a cosmic crisis. All of that lends itself very much to a Vogelin analysis. So acknowledging that um, is true, but also I think pushing back and saying, at at what point does political action become too radical? Uh, too at, w- at what point does does political action become illegitimate because it's gnostic? I don't. Th- I think I think we just need, we probably just need more more nuance around that before we say that's a Gnostic movement. But I see your point.
0: I think the I mean you you asked for a concrete example. I wasn't actually going to give one, although that's a perfectly valid thing to request. But just just let me restate the the kind of idea I had. Yeah yeah uh away from the concrete example because obviously yeah that one's going to be really uh oh, contested. Yeah. It's complex. Uh, it's all complex at least one person I just threw their phone in the toilet because they <laughs> I said that, and I I recognise that that's a very highly contentious and disputed uh, matter. And so there are different perspectives there. But I, I think, let me restate it like this: I think conservatism, per se, or certainly the historical tradition, going back to Burke, really doesn't think like these Gnostic contemporary political movements. It does believe. Like we just said, even some people who don't believe in a divine order do believe there is a kind of order of being, yeah. and would agree with us on the trans issue, um, and don't are uh, kind of suspicious of gnosis and yeah. and it's the way it's kind of worshipped and you know the the role of the overstated outsized role of human reason in political organization and. And problems and the whole, you know, the drive for perfection. A lot of conservatives just don't believe that's possible. And a lot of conservatives actually say there's a lot of good with the world. And I'm in this camp. This is one thing I like about conservatism. When you think about it, it's one of the few isms, perhaps the only one these days, that actually says there's some good things about Western civilization, society, democracy, free markets. Like they actually... Their view is not that we're trapped in this um, abysmal world, which is why I think that evangelical thinking in the US is a kind of conservative heresy, in that it's bought into this, I think, left wing idea that the world sucks and we're imprisoned in it, and there's no hope. Right, right, right. We've got we've got to desperately yeah. extricate ourselves, yeah. liberate ourselves. It's become a kind of liberationist yeah. uh, movement. But I but I think. I'm not saying this is Vogel's view or that it's it's not compatible with Vogel's mm. thesis mm. in this book, but I think conservatism is susceptible yeah. to Gnosticism. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think it's a, a immune from it. Just yep. in the way Russell Kirk, he argued that conservatism was the very negation of ideology, but it yeah. was always at risk of becoming an ideology. And I think that has really happened um, big time today. And that and kind of, you know, I did want to ask you what you thought about the relevance of Oakland today. And I, w- I would put on the table that that's one relevance yep. is uh, as a warning to conservatives to not immanentize the eschaton, yep. to not succumb to Gnostic uh, thinking.
1: Yep. I totally agree. I, I, I actually totally agree with, with you. I think... This is a point where conservatives can learn from Vogelin uh, in terms of framing their own political action, in terms of framing their ideology, in, in terms of understanding their place in a given society, but also in thinking about well, what do we want to achieve in our society, what are the goods that we're reaching for. It Vogelin, Vogelin gives conservatives pause Gives them pause to think about whether the kinds of actions they're taking, the kinds of rhetoric they're using, the kinds of uh, the political imagination that they're they're working with is really a conservative one. Uh, Now, uh, is it really a conservative one? Actually, the issue really isn't about whether it's conservative or not. The issue is about whether it's gnostic or not. And so, it's actually it's a it's a it's a the one one really helpful thing about this discussion, Jonathan and Vogelins framework is that it's not about conservatism it's about gnosticism and the problem of gnosticism and as you say gnosticism can be a problem whether you're on the left or the right and so this yeah this is this is helpful and relevant it also i think helps me i mean it's helped me as i was thinking this through it's helped me frame some of the kinds of things that we're seeing as I, as we talked about yeah. not long ago on the podcast today it helps me frame some of the things we're seeing in our society that i find troubling it actually gives me a framework that's not just uh not just moral uh, it's not it's not simply uh that uh, i think change is bad because i'm a conservative or anything like that like it it, it actually is a it's it, it frames a particular way of understanding the nature of reality and then how we act within that reality that's actually it, it vogel and i think po- is pointing out to for us, that at the bottom of a lot of these problems is uh, is a different vision of reality, a, a fundamental reality. Yeah. So I think this is helpful yeah. for conservatives.
0: And the, and that is good, and it goes to that, that point you made about the prohibition of questions, which she observes yeah, yeah. As part of the, the Gnostic modus operandi, which is, and I like this about Vogel, which is why it's hard to think of him as a political scientist in the yeah. sense of that term today, in that he really is concerned about reality. And another thinker I've worked on, Christoph siena is really big on this, that thinks his whole, or con- uh, well, one of his contentions, which I quite like, is the idea that politics reflects our presuppositions about, right, or political organisation yeah. reflects a, a culture's presuppositions about reality, yeah. and that ultimately it is a sort of, politics is an ontological statement in a way. Yeah. And so therefore you should never separate politics as contemporary political scientists do into some kind of technical yeah. problem-solving uh, thing. You've always got to ask epistemological and ontological um, yeah. questions. And Vogel, and I really did think of Yann here, they're, they're yeah. kind of similar. Uh, well, Yann was born in 35, so he's only a generation uh, behind the, these people who think politics genuinely philosophically yeah. like in terms of what is the nature of reality how does it fit into the cosmos where is the divine Siano russ also talks about or he talks more about the christian god of the bible and he's got a trinitarian yeah. conception so it's more christian but it, it's still not really theology it's it's about he's got this idea of the trinitarian archetype of existence where uh, and he's very influenced by the same Greek thinkers that uh, he thinks uh, political society is the collective pursuit of truth and living in accord with the Trinitarian archetype of the the cosmos which is this again this old idea that's quite refreshing because people do not think this way I would even say uh, Simon conservatives yeah they don't don't, they don't really think, think this way because they have, lost touch with the intellectual tradition yeah. of conservatism, which brings me to my final uh, discussion point, and that—that that is where Vogan fits within conservatism. I, I note I recently read George H. Nash's Tour de Force, which I highly commend, called The Conservative Intellectual Movement in America Since 1945. Vogan's all throughout it, mm. and he's... He's regarded, at least by the historians of the intellectual, conservative intellectual tradition in America, and by contemporary American conservative intellectuals who come out of this tradition and are connected to it. He's one of the big figures on the right. But I have to confess, and you're right, the term conservatism never, never appears in this little little book. Maybe he talks about it elsewhere. And maybe he was very conservative himself, and so he was known to kind of be conservative and on the right. He's definitely critical of the right-isms in terms of Marxism, for example, and and the like. But on my first read, and also on my second read, I found myself wondering, this is not the typical yeah. work in the canon no. of conservatism, you know, your Burks and your Kirks and uh, Oakeshott, Scruton's, others. So uh, it begs the question, what in your view is conservative about this political Gnosticism thesis? <laughs> it's,
1: using Oakeshott as an example, actually, some some are, some writings of Oakeshott are explicitly conservative because he's dealing with conservatism philosophically. Other writings like experience and its modes, I don't believe, are framed in a particularly, you know, explicitly conservative way. And I think this is what Vogelin's doing, whether he's conservative or not himself. Uh, He's writing a book of philosophy. Uh, I will answer your question, but I want to start by pointing people to an article. I think it's by Brad Bertzer, and I think you can find it on the Imaginative Conservative website where he talks about Vogelin and conservatism. And he points, it, this illustrates your point, actually. He he writes about uh, Vogelin's interaction with the conservative movement in America. And he says it's a weird relationship because Vogelin never really buys in explicitly. He But he, uh, Pertzis talks about how he took conservative money, you know, um, and he was useful for conservatives. But then he has this brilliant recounting of a meeting between Russell Kirk and Eric Vogelin. Russell Kirk goes to visit Eric Vogelin and apparently they sat at the opposite ends of this room. I think it was Eric Vogelin's living room and they hardly spoke to each other. It it sounds like it was extremely awkward. They didn't know what to say. I think they might have been both smoking a pipe or whatever. And it's like these men who are in the pantheon of conservative thought in the 20th century you you know US conservative world actually don't really have that much in common <laughs> and they can't really relate to each other now there's all kinds of reasons why that could happen but Burt's point I think is an interesting one which is that Vogelant doesn't really fit in he doesn't really fit in with what he writes he doesn't really fit in with who he is in some ways he he's actually he's a Scot- he's a university academic doesn't mean you can't be a conservative, but his work is is um, his work is interacting with it's in a different in a, it's in a it's in conversation with different people to who Kirk was interacting with and in conversation with. Just using Kirk as an example, mm. so wh- it's worth going to have a look at that article because it's quite funny actually. Part of that part where they, he describes the meeting at uh, Folkland's house is, is fascinating and kind of amusing. Uh, Where does Vogelin fit into conservatism? Well, his ideas uh, are, generally speaking, useful for conservatives because of this emphasis on divine order and the given order and the fracturing that occurs when you abandon that. And this is a conservative idea, and it recalls, you know, a religious conception of reality uh, that... Uh, is almost it it almost has to be at the foundation of of conservatism because otherwise it is relativism you have to have a that uh, russell kirk talks about this that there's a moral foundation at the at the bottom of all discussions about politics and you have to as a conservative that's foundational to that discussion vogelin gives a philosophical ontological political framework for that um vogelin's uh analysis of ideas in history is not necessarily particularly conservative, I don't think. He's kind of like Leo Strauss in some ways, in that Strauss, I think, I don't know actually how conservative Strauss was, but Strauss is part of the conservative movement, as Vogelin is. Um, Vogelin's not Straussian, that's not what Mm. I'm saying, that's important to state uh, they did actually interact i think a fair bit personally maybe they wrote letters to each other actually but the but the the point there is that the role that these these men of letters play and they're not just men of letters but they're actually university highly regarded philosophers university academics they're they're, they're playing a different institutional role they're writing in different spaces they're being read by different people not just not just people in the conservative movement and i think that's where we feel a bit of tension because what Vogelin's doing is not not the same as what someone like Russell Kirk's doing or Roger Scruton even.
0: Yeah, I wonder in some sense, Simon, whether some of these figures become identified with conservatism based partly or even mainly by who reads them after the fact. After Absolutely. They're gone. So if, if it's mainly people on the right after Vogel and Dyers, or even who respond favorably to his major works like The New Science of Politics, and let's say it's critiqued on the left, then ultimately you can see, you can make sense of why people then <laughs> in historiography, there ever after, he becomes incorporated into the tradition of conservative thinkers. And the same with Leo Strauss, because I I I am confident to say that you you won't meet, uh, Burke's a little different here, interestingly, but you don't meet people who are really into Vogelin and Strauss who are like woke or progressive. That's right. So That's right. Sometimes, um, in a sense, the reception can play a definitive role, yeah. I think, yeah, yeah. in how we think of these figures. But if you had have asked some of them, they may not have said, I was a conservative. And I think... There's a good example here, actually, with von Mises, Hayek, and Friedman, all three of whom describe themselves as liberals, mm. but have become libertarian gods. Yes. And yes. Yeah. And so, and that's because of who is influenced by them. Yeah, yeah. And so, I was thinking about this because, as you know, I've just read von Mises's four-volume Human Action, and I find. Amongst conservatives, you'll generally hear some positive noises about von Mises, but they're not really reading him and studying him, and he's not the kind of urtext. text Yeah. Whereas for libertarians, this is a major, yes, seminal, important, yes, yes, figure that played a definitive role in the development and emergence of their mm-hmm. their system, and mm-hmm. vice versa. You might find a libertarian who says, "Yeah, look, there's some cool stuff in Burke," but they they're not. They haven't read it as many times as we have, and done as many podcasts on it as I've. Yes, I've done. Because again, I, I really, I really think a good way to think about the differentiation between these isms is to think of them as intellectual traditions. And you rarely get figures who uh, have a place in multiple yeah. traditions. They tend to end up having more influence in one particular, yeah. more influential in one yeah. uh, tradition, and that. Makes them part of the tradition, yeah. and I do think. I mean, clearly, do I think this is contestable on empirical grounds. Vogelin is regarded; he's claimed by the conservative right. tradition. I've never seen his name come up in libertarianism or any any of the movements on the on the left. But that said, Simon, I don't hear anyone on the right talking about him today.
1: No, no. There's well, there's only there's there is a website called Vogelin View, which is a conservative okay a um, uh, website that posts long long form articles on all kinds of things and it's cons- it's you know it's conservative um, and it is trying to found base itself on the on the ideas of eric vogelin uh, it's quite a good website it's actually quite a good website and again people can check that out to sort of see an illustration of conservatives who are who are trying to follow vogelin and doing so within a conservative framework but I can definitely see ways in which people who aren't conservative would benefit greatly from reading Vogelin and, and indeed find a lot of common ground with him uh, there's no particular I, I the interesting thing is there's no there's no explicit reason why someone who's a liberal or even further to the left could couldn't read Vogelin and agree with some of the things he says to be quite honest there are I mean there are figures who who straddle different, Different traditions due due to reception, and Mm -hmm. Hegel's a good example of that. Oh yeah, you know, classic (laughs) classic example. Uh, And and Emmanuel Kant is another one. And these are, but these are great, great thinkers whose ideas transcend ideology. Um, uh, And so, uh, Vogelin is is a, a really interesting and fantastic thinker. Is he a great thinker in the same way that Hegel and can't can't work. I don't I don't think so um, not a criticism of him not not many people are in that pantheon so I'm not criticizing them but I think that maybe his thought does tend to just lend itself to that to that more politically conservative framework in the end partly because of his view on the relationship between the divine and the political I, I suspect yeah. that's that's a fundamental
0: fundamental piece I think you're right and my, another way of looking at this is to Ask who, in the current across the current political or ideological spectrum, would even take seriously the notion that there is a an intrinsic given divine order, and that a lot of contemporary political movements are a perversion of that, mm. making them gnostic in this ancient Christian uh, Greek sense. and the only place I think you'll find any sympathy for that idea, and the only place you're likely to find people who embrace that to some extent, is the right. Yep. And conservatism, it's clearly way out of step with all the isms on the left. And so aside from reception, there is something actually... Yeah. I think the proper classification of this is just objectively, forget the history and the reception, is, is conservative. That's not to say that many or most conservatives really... About the world in this way, and certainly, I don't. Th- uh, I haven't heard anyone talking about any of anything like wokeism as Gnosticism. There'd be a good essay there, Simon, yes, for you or me to write, or both yeah. of us, because I, um, I like that. Uh, no one has made that observation, uh, but in any event, I, I think we've come to the end of our road, unless sort of some massive confession you need to make on no I don't have or anything else so Simon it's always a pleasure always a lot of fun to do these deep dives into the conservative intellectual tradition as the two last conservative intellectuals in Australia <laughs> sorry that that's, that's going to really piss off the other three conservative intellectuals <laughs> I'll hear I'll hear from them as yeah. I always do when I, right. I say there are no conservative intellectuals but uh, thanks so much for the conversation look forward to the next one.
1: thanks so much for having me Jonathan it's always always a pleasure I look forward to coming back
0: well folks that's all she or they wrote uh thanks for listening if you enjoyed the podcast consider giving it a five-star rating on Apple or Spotify subscribe if you haven't already and I'll catch you next time bye